Good evening, it's a privilege to be with you this evening for this, this event that is extremely important for us to understand some very critical things that are happening in the world of evangelicalism as it pertains to the issues of social justice. I wanna invite you to open your Bibles this evening to 2 Timothy chapter three. I want you to hold your finger there because we will eventually arrive at verse 16. But before we do, I want to set the stage, if we can, to understand what's happening in the world of social justice as it pertains to the issue of intersectionality. I remember years ago, I was watching this movie with my children that perhaps you've seen, Finding Nemo. And I remember watching that little movie over and over and over and over again. And I remember one particular scene where Nemo was in the dentist's office and he needed to get out of that bowl and out of that fish tank and he needed to get into the ocean to be reunited with his father. And I remember that as I watched that whole scene, there was one particular line that sticks out in my mind and it was this particular fish that said as they were trying to get Nemo into one of the drains so that he could make it to the ocean, they were confused as to whether or not the sink and the toilet would do the same job. And one of the fish said these words, all drains lead to the ocean. Now, as we think about religion today, there are an awful lot of people that approach religion with that same mindset, that all religion leads to the same place. But that's simply not true. And so when we hear any type of movement that seeks to use tactics and methods and ideas that would diminish the idea of faith alone in Christ alone, through the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone, we should be very, very nervous about any sort of movement that would move us away from that understanding. So what's the alarm here with social justice? What is the big deal? As you will see in this very session and in all of the sessions this evening, social justice is a massive problem. The implementation of intersectionality within the church, within the evangelical community, is walking towards a new religion. And so as we think about that, I want you to understand what I'm not saying, and so I'm going to qualify one time and then I'm going to move on. What I'm not saying is that anyone who is a proponent of social justice is a heretic, I'm not saying that. I want to go on record as stating that I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that those who embrace the ideas and the methodology of social justice are, in many cases, trending very closely to the line of heresy. And what they don't realize is that oftentimes your disciples become far more radical than you are. So this is a dangerous movement. And we need to be very cautious. So as we think about social justice, we have today, uh, within the evangelical culture, it's swimming with all sorts of confusion. There's a social justice train that's rolling right through evangelicalism, and the social justice agenda has produced all sorts of different movements. The Me Too movement, the Hands Up, Don't Shoot movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, the Woke movement. And so we have all sorts of confusion, and now we have people wondering, if we can discern the proper boundaries for women in the home and in the church and across denominational structures. 
And we're also confused about what razor to use now after the latest ad with Gillette. And so we have all of this confusion, and so it's, a, it's really a strange times to be living in America. And it's really strange times to be a Christian in America. In recent years, I started to see the red flags of social justice, and I was listening to sermons at conferences and reading books and reading articles online, and I started to see these things, and all of this came to a boiling point last year as I was listening to evangelicals on, on platforms uh, talking about the methods of social justice and the politics of social justice and the ideas of social justice, I just couldn't take it anymore. And I could see these things clearly laid out before us and I could see the dangers. And I started calling some friends and made some phone calls and one thing led to the next. And before long, we had what has now been called the Social Justice Summit that was held in Dallas, Texas. Friends of mine and different Christian leaders, we assembled in a boardroom for an entire day and we dissected these issues, sermon clips, music, all of these things, articles, social media tweets and statements were all put on the, the table before us. And we articulated these problems and we tried to discern these problems and then we tried to drive at solutions. And so emerging from that very meeting last summer was what is now known as the statement on social justice and the gospel. But yet people have continued to ask questions like this, is this really necessary? Is this really a serious threat to the church of Jesus Christ? And then we, on the very heels of those questions, we see books being released like Woke Church. And so with a book released titled Woke Church, I think that we should take these very threats seriously. The term woke has been defined by Eric Mason in a sermon at Dallas Theological Seminary as an urban colloquialism. It was used by the black nationalists and those who are in the black consciousness movement. Well, needless to say, the term doesn't have the best history. And yet now we're attaching it to the church of Jesus Christ. And according to the proponents of social justice, to be woke is the equivalent to be awakened. It's this idea of being awakened to a social reality. To, to be able to discern the, the social challenges and the injustices that are around us. And so if you can't see it, then you're not woke, you're not awakened. You don't know what you don't know, but you need to know what you don't know. And when you know what you don't know, then you're woke, and now you need to figure out a way to right the wrongs of the past. So if you can't see white supremacy or gender inequality, or systemic racism, then you're not woke. And once you become awakened to these issues, then you must approach the problems through what's known as intersectionality. Intersectionality in many ways has become the new gospel. The background of intersectionality is found in the late 80s. It was coined by this woman known as Kimberly Crenshaw. She was a political activist, still is a radical feminist, and she was attempting to, to figure out ways to free those who were oppressed in our culture. So, for instance, she would say it like this. If you have a woman in America, just because she's a woman, then she is held back. She's 
oppressed and there are a number of injustices just simply because of the fact that she's a woman. But if you add another layer to that issue, if she happens to be a black woman, then that's two different layers of oppression that she experiences. And where those two different layers intersect, at that intersection is a massive amount of oppression and injustice that she experiences. But then if you add another layer to it, if she's a woman who happens to be black, but she's also a lesbian. Now those three places where that intersection happens is not only according to Crenshaw and others, is not only at the heart of who that individual actually is, but it's also the greatest opportunity for oppression and injustice for that individual. And so, if we can use intersectionality according to those in the social justice world, then we can be awakened to the spotlight to see who actually does need to be freed from this oppression. We can see those who need to be freed from this this injustice. And so now, that same type of language and that same type of methodology is now being employed within conservative evangelical circles, within denominations, within conferences, and other organizations that we have trusted for so long. And so now we have this idea that if you happen to be a woman who is a conference speaker and you're a Southern Baptist and you happen to be black, then all of those layers produce different layers of oppression. And so we need to use and employ the ideas of intersectionality to be able to figure out how to right the wrongs of the past. And so the way that we right the wrongs of the past is that we employ intersectionality and then we use these methods to free these individuals. And how do we do that? Well, we empower them. We raise them up to the highest level of leadership within denominational structures. This past year, we had a controversy that was fueled through social justice, through the Me Too movement, where Beth Moore wrote an article. It was an open letter that was published online that was titled, A Letter to My Brothers. In that particular article, she articulated the idea of mistreatment and systemic oppression within the evangelical community. Her letter resulted in a flood of support from major evangelical leaders, one of which was Thabidion Yabwile. And he wrote a letter, a public open letter, titled, An Apology to Beth Moore and My Sisters. In that particular letter, this is what he stated, quote, I do now commit to being a more outspoken champion for my sisters and for you personally. Not that you need me to be, but because it is right. I hope with God's help to grow in sanctification, especially with regards to any sexism, misogyny, chauvinism, and the like that has used biblical teaching to cover for its growth, end quote. Do you notice the language there? Sexism, misogyny, chauvinism, biblical teaching to cover for its growth. Pay close attention to the language. Jen Wilkin, a popular author and speaker, also weighed in on the issues. And on Twitter, she stated the following. Pay close attention to the, to the language. Quote, as go our seminaries, 
so go our churches. It's past time for a full reevaluation of existing power structures and for the strategic implementation of formal channels of influence, input, and leadership for women in the SBC. Russell Moore, who is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, also weighed in on Twitter, and this is what he stated, quote, there would be no Southern Baptist Convention without Lottie Moon and Annie Armstrong. We desperately need a resurgence of women's voices and women's leadership and women's empowerment. Again, it is way past time, end quote. Also weighing in on the subject is the now president of the Southern Baptist Convention, J.D. Greer, who was tweeting back and forth with Beth Moore, and this is what he stated, quote, Thank you, Beth, hoping that we are entering a new era where we in the complementarian world take all the Word of God seriously, not just the parts about distinction of roles, but also the tearing down of all hierarchy and His gracious distribution of gifts to all His children. Do you notice the tearing down of hierarchy? Pay close attention to that. So what are these methods doing? New developments are are coming upon the church almost at rapid speed, pushing against the idea of, of leadership and redefining the issues and the definitions of complementarianism, pushing the issues of progressive liberalism. This has really become in many ways, a brave new religion. Intersectionality has replaced the gospel in some circles. Being born again has been relegated to the level of being woke. In other words, recognize your sin of privilege. Repent of your privilege. Empower the the less privileged and you determine who is in need of this empowerment through intersectionality. And there's no end to this cycle. So the concerns are, what will this do within evangelicalism to the God-ordained boundaries for men and women and our understanding of complementarianism? What will intersectionality do within the local church? How will this social justice agenda impact the progressive left's attempt to restrict freedom of speech and to implement hate laws and hate speech. So the issues are enormous. This is a dangerous, progressive attack on the church. Intersectionality operates, listen, from the framework of postmodernism. This is a dangerous attack on the freedom of religion, the freedom of speech, and much more. So why is all this happening, you say? Well, it's about power. It's about control. You see, the social justice movement is massive. It's powerful. It's lucrative. And those who control the narrative control the power structure. And they would have you to believe that if you don't get on board with their social justice agenda, you will be unsuccessful and irrelevant. That's what they would have you to believe. So how are they doing this? And how are they successful in doing this? Well, you attach woke to church. You attach social justice to the gospel. 
you make progressive politics sexy. You change power structures. You tear down hierarchies. You build on a foundation of wokeness. And what will be the outcome of this? Intersectionality is the new church growth movement. They're operating from this idea of standpoint epistemology. This idea that the Holy Spirit has awakened me to what the problems are, the injustices of our culture. And the reason that you don't see it is because the Holy Spirit has not given you that privilege yet. But once you're awakened, then you use the methods like intersectionality and you go back and you help empower those who have been held back from flourishing. Not only does intersectionality find its beginnings in the liberal left left progressive movements of postmodernism, but note this, it is an absolute attack on the sufficiency of Scripture. So here's my question before us this evening, and for the next few minutes, I want to explore this idea. Is the Bible enough? That's the question. Is the Word of God enough? In 2 Timothy 3.16, the Apostle Paul writing, in essence, his final words to his son in the faith. And to Timothy, he says this in verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, verse 17. You see, the word of God is superior. And the word of God is not only inerrant, but it's sufficient. Paul was writing this very letter to Timothy. In many ways, his last words. And he understood that Timothy was in a big fight in Ephesus. Ephesus was a horrible city. Ephesus was a terrible city filled with sin. You see, Paul had labored there for about three years. He, he loved the church. He loved Timothy. And he had warned the elders that there would come a day when the heretics would come into the church and they would seek to, to attack the church and to attack the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, Ephesus was located in a very strategic place in what is now known as modern-day Turkey, and where these roads intersected provided for great trade opportunities. It was known as the Vanity Fair of the ancient world. Ephesus was full of athletic competitions. There was a great theater that would seat 25,000 people or more. But Ephesus was also full of worship. There was the Temple of Artemis there, or Diana, And so there was all sorts of worship surrounding this temple where you have a multi-breasted goddess elevated in this temple and full of all sorts of temple prostitution. So if you think about the context of Ephesus and you think about where Timothy was pastoring, you think about his challenges of human slavery, materialism, injustices upon women, fornication and adultery, and idolatry on every corner. And yet Paul did not point Timothy to intersectionality. Paul did not elevate in his final words, the the, the last words that he would have assurance that Timothy would ever hear, he did not point him to social justice. He pointed Timothy to the sufficiency of God's word. 
You see in this very verse, this one verse, we see the origin of Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God, theonoustos. In other words, Scripture finds its source in the very breath of God, not in man, but in God. Hebrews 1.1 says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. It was God who was speaking. 2 Peter 1.21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is a panoramic statement, if you will, regarding all of God's Word. The Scriptures, the Bible, is a wonderful treasure. You ever just stop to think about what a wonderful treasure the Word of God is? 66 different books, over 1,500 years, written by 40 different human authors, Two were kings, one was a former Pharisee. You have statesmen and you have a scribe and a cupbearer and a farmer. You have fishermen and shepherds. God is employing all of these individuals and using their gifts and their abilities and bringing about what we now know as the word of the living God. What a wonderful treasure it is. We consider the fact that all of the different genres of the Bible it's not all the same as far as the, the genre. You have narrative and poetry and prophecy and proverb and parable and gospel and epistle. You have 1,189 chapters, 31,000 verses, 33,000 promises, 6,468 commands. You see, the, the Word of God is sufficient. The Bible is God's Word, not man's Word. John Calvin once said it like this, where the Bible speaks, God speaks. So my question is this, if the Bible is pure, if the Bible is holy, if the Bible is superior, if the Bible is sufficient, then why do we need intersectionality and social justice to advance in this modern, urbane culture as far as the church is concerned in local, tangible, visible New Testament communities all around the world? And so I would argue that we simply don't need it. We don't need intersectionality. We don't need social justice. You see, not only do we see the origin of Scripture, but we see the sufficiency of Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God, but then notice this, it's profitable. It's profitable for teaching. This is discipleship. It's profitable for reproof and correction and training in righteousness. This is discipline. It has been well stated in recent history. We have won the battle on the inerrancy of Scripture, but we are presently losing the battle on the sufficiency of Scripture. I would say it like this. We've all but turned our backs on the sufficiency of Scripture. We have replaced theology with victimology. We have replaced the Scriptures with sociology. But the Bible is sufficient. The Bible is sufficient. All Scripture is profitable for teaching. This word teaching has the idea of the act of teaching and the act of instruction in truth. In other words, the content of Scripture contains the truth of God. It is God's Word. When we look back at the Reformation, 2017, we talked a lot about the Reformation. And by the way, we don't need to just get on past the Reformation today. 
We have to ask an honest question, how in the world did the Reformation happen? How in the world did the Reformation move forward? When we think about the men, the courageous men who stood, they stood against the errors of the day, but they were not using the tactics and the methods of intersectionality. They were standing firm with the Word of God. You see, consider the the preaching of the Reformers. Consider Luther's preaching. Between 1510 and 1546, Luther preached approximately 3,000 sermons. He preached several times each day, sometimes two or more times a day. Luther wasn't playing at preaching. Consider the, the preaching of Calvin. He began a series in Acts in 1549. He completed it in 1554. He preached 46 sermons through First and Second Thessalonians, 186 sermons through First and Second Corinthians. He preached 86 sermons through the pastoral epistles. His series through Galatians was 43 sermons. He preached 48 sermons through Ephesians. He preached 159 sermons through Job. His series through Deuteronomy was 200 sermons. He labored through Isaiah in 353 sermons. His series through Genesis was 123 sermons. And so we get a glimpse of his preaching. On Easter... In 1538, he was banished from his pulpit by the city council. He would not return to his pulpit for about three years. But on the Sunday, when he returned to the pulpit, he picked up in the very next verse. He didn't come and say, well, now, since I've been oppressed by the injustices of the city council, I want to implement some ideas called intersectionality. He said, thus says the Lord God. It's not only profitable for discipleship, it's profitable for discipline. The idea here is that the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God, that through this faithful preaching, a person is corrected from error and brought to a place of righteousness. In other words, it's through the preaching of the Word of God that both our creed and our conduct is changed. This impacts both what we believe and how we live. You consider the fact that it says reproof. Reproof or rebuke in response to refuting error. Rebuking error, this is a strong disapproval. When Luther took his stand at Worms, When he was asked to recant, remember what he said? He said, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant of anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. You say, well, I know history, Pastor Josh, and we're not really certain that he said it just like that. Well, let's be certain of this. He was standing on the Word of God. Whether he stated it just like that or whether it was rephrased in different words, he was standing on the Word of God. Once upon a time, there were courageous men who stood against error with the Word, but today we have men who are trading their swords in for sticks. Today in the evangelical world, we have little boys who are playing games rather than men who are preparing to go to war. We need God's Word. We need the Bible. The Bible is the Word of God, and the Word of God is sufficient. But not only do we see this idea of 
reproof, there's the word correction. Correcting is the idea of restoration. The focus is setting right a person's conduct. So now the question becomes this. Do we or do we not believe that all of the injustices that we could ever line up in front of us and that we could ever state and list before us, do we or do we not believe that every one of these sins and all of these injustices can be corrected with the Bible? Can racism be corrected with Scripture? Can injustices to women be corrected with the Word of God? Is there any sin that's too big for the Bible? If a person's conduct and his or her manner of life needs correction, isn't God's Word enough? Must we turn to the complicated web of progressive politics to right the wrongs of a person's heart? Must we employ intersectionality and figure out the different layers of oppression and try to figure out ways to free people so that they can flourish for the glory of God? Must we do this, or is the Bible enough? Do we need cultural Marxism for the church to march forward, or is the Bible enough? This idea of discipline involves training in righteousness. This particular word in the Greek has the idea of providing guidance for responsible living, typically gained by correction and discipline. In other words, the Bible comes from God. The Bible is profitable for discipleship. And in the teaching and the discipling of individuals, within the local, tangible, visible New Testament church, we learn how to come to a right understanding of doctrine, so our creed is right, and then we come to a right understanding of how we live, our conduct is right. And when that stuff starts to get out of place, whether it be our creed or our conduct, then discipline can be employed by faithful elders holding to the sufficiency of God's Word in the context of the local church and can bring people to a right place and can right the wrongs of injustices and sin and oppression and can allow for women to flourish and all of this for the glory of God. So the Word of God is enough. I truly believe that pragmatics and politics are driving good men to error. I genuinely believe that. I believe that there are some people who know exactly what they're doing in this social justice movement. And I believe that there are multitudes of people that have no idea what's happening in the social justice world. And it's tragic. So imagine with me a world where there are faithful, robust, healthy churches, where we have people who are being brought back to the priority of the local church, not YouTube, not conferences, Conferences aren't bad, but a priority to the local church under the shepherding and the guidance and the authority of faithful elders who believe the Bible to be sufficient and will dare to practice biblical loving church discipline and this reproof and correction and training in righteousness brings everyone back to the right path. Imagine a world like that.
We would have strong churches. We, we would have able men and women and boys and girls who could face the complications of this, this sin-filled world before us. Imagine, if you will, a world where we had local churches like that. We would have strong, superior weapons to face the complexities of this dark world. Just imagine a world like that. Imagine denominations like that. Imagine organizations like that. Imagine conferences like that. Imagine fellowships like that. Imagine local churches just like that. And when that happens, no pride, no arrogance, no injustice, no sin, no racism, no gender oppression, no police brutality, nothing can stand against the sufficient Word of God. So if we will be one, if we will experience unity, if we will maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, if women will flourish, and if marriages will be strong, if we will respect one another, if we will see the sanctity of human life restored to its proper place, if we will see the injustices of racism in the church defeated, if we will see these injustices of our culture corrected, it will be through the gospel of Jesus Christ delivered through the sufficient word of God alone. The proponents of social justice are playing the cards of ethnic pragmatism, gender pragmatism, class pragmatism, sexual pragmatism. But I just say simply this, give me the book. Give me God's word. You see, we need the holy, inspired, infallible, inerrant, sufficient word of the living God. The proponents of social justice are using the methods of intersectionality, critical race theory, systemic racism, white privilege, all of these ideas. But I just simply say this, and call me crazy, but I believe this. I believe that the Bible is enough. I believe that the word of God is sufficient, so I leave with these words. I conclude with the words of Charles Spurgeon. During the time of the downgrade controversy, when he was standing against the progressive movements of his day, this is what Charles Spurgeon said. Quote, this weapon is good at all points, good for defense and for attack, to guard our whole person or to strike through the joints and marrow of the foe. Like the seraph's sword at Eden's gate, it turns every way. You cannot be in a condition that the Word of God is not provided. The Word of God has so many faces and eyes as providence itself. You will find it unfailing in all periods of your life, in all circumstances, in all companies, in all trials, and under all difficulties. Were it fallible, it would be useless in emergencies, but its unerring truth renders it precious beyond all price to the soldiers of the cross, end quote. I believe that the Bible is enough, and intersectionality is unnecessary, and intersectionality is a dangerous methodology that is unprofitable for the church of Jesus Christ. So I would urge you, brothers and sisters, to go back to the book Go back to God's word. Leave here, leave this conference with an absolute confidence 
in the sufficient word of the living God. So therefore, my brothers and sisters, I urge you, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in Christ Jesus.